The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Daniel. All right, well, um, there's an old bumper sticker that always kind of makes me laugh when I see it, and it says, Jesus is coming soon, look busy. (laughs) I don't know why that makes me laugh, it just does. Jesus is coming soon, look busy. This passage is one of those passages that's about busyness, Um, and here's the thing. We have some challenges when we come to a passage of scripture like this, and one of those challenges is we read it, and out of the gate, we think we know what Jesus is saying already. We already think, you already know where I'm going to go with this. It's going to be, do less, be still more, don't be so busy, slow down, all that kind of thing. And to that, I want to say, okay, partially, it's that. But it's more than that. Uh, And so we're going to dig into this. We're busy people, and there's nothing that's going to change that. We live in a busy world where things are happening all the time. And what happens is we live, especially in our city, we live in a city where we have a job, and then we have another job, and then we have a side hustle on top of that, and a side hustle on top of that, right? That's just, I don't know many people who have one job. Uh, I I know a lot of people who cobble together a living in a whole lot of different ways. And what what we do is we we work, we busy, we put things together, and our calendars fill up, and they fill up, and they fill up. And then you know what we do? We add more things to the calendar. And then we plan like major life changes on top of that, or we just accommodate them because they come. And today's, today's passage, it speaks to busyness. But there's an important point of clarification that I want to make here at the beginning as we get into it, and it's this. This text is not primarily about what we do with our time. This is not a time management text. It's not merely a warning against getting too busy. Because if we treat it that way, as we, if we treat it as a passage that's just about managing your time differently, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to become legalists in the way we apply it. Right? And, and, and we're going to think what God wants for me to do is he wants me to schedule my day with different things than what I currently schedule it with. And so I just need to fill the time differently. Right? And that's where we could go with this. This passage is not about that. This passage is about where our affections lie. This passage is about what we love. 
And it's asking that question, what do you love? Because you pursue what you love. You do. We pursue what we love. This passage is about what the heart pursues and why. And so as we dig in, I want that to be a guiding thought. What do you pursue and why? Do you even know? Because I'm convinced that a lot of us are pursuing things that we love. And we've never really once stopped to ask the question, what do I love and what am I pursuing? We're just doing it. And we're just going and we're going and we're going. And this text is an invitation for us to stop and to consider, wait, what is driving me? So let's dig into it. I'm going to give a little background, and then we'll, we'll look at Martha for a little bit, then we'll look at Mary for a little bit, and then we'll, we'll have some application there that will go as a part of it. But let's get people in places here, background first. This story from the life of Jesus happened in a place called Bethany, uh, which is a village that's directly to the east of Jerusalem, uh, it's about two miles away from Jerusalem. So if you're familiar with I-65 for context, it'd be about the distance from the Moores Lane exit to the McEwen exit would be the distance from Jerusalem to Bethany. Uh, what's between these two is a valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. And in that valley is the, um, it's the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is there on the eastern side of that valley. So you go Jerusalem, the Mount of, uh, the Temple Mount where the, where the temple is. You've seen the Dome of the Rock in pictures. There's a valley that drops down. When it goes back up, Bethany's right there, right? So that's where Bethany is. <clears throat> Today, if you go there, that valley that separates Jerusalem and Bethany is mostly filled with graves. It's mostly just a cemetery. <clears throat> but Bethany was then and still is a stop on the way from uh, Jerusalem to the region of Galilee. And the reason was because between like Jerusalem and Galilee was Samaria. And most Jewish people would not travel through Samaria. They wouldn't just go straight from one to the other. So what they would kind of do an end run around it. And so they would go from Jerusalem over to Jericho, follow the Jordan River up, and then back over into the region of Galilee. And so that's how they would travel. They would do this kind of thing. And so it, what it meant was that when you were traveling from the north, from Galilee down to Jerusalem, you would, go, you would follow the Jordan River, hit Jericho, cut over, and Bethany would be the last place you would stop before you would enter Jerusalem. It would be the last little outpost. Um, I bring all that up to say, I wanted you to have that geography because one, I'm a nerd about that kind of stuff. It's cool. Um, but two, because it meant that we know that Jesus grew up taking pilgrimages to Jerusalem from Nazareth and from Galilee where he lived. Scripture tells us that. Luke 2.41 tells us it was their custom to make these pilgrimages for the holy days, for, for things like Pentecost and Passover and things. They would go and they would, they would do these, the, these trips and so you begin to, you know, kind of have stops along the way, just like we do when we, when we make regular trips back and forth to anywhere. We have certain restaurants we stop at, certain um, places where we stop, maybe friends along the way. If I go here, I can stop and visit a friend there and go there. And so what happens is somewhere along the way, Jesus grew up making these trips from Nazareth and Galilee, that area, over to the Jordan, down to Jericho, over to Jerusalem. And they would stop at Bethany, and somewhere along the way, Jesus became friends with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. When scripture talks about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they're described in ways that are they're like they're fr like friends of his. They're people that he loved. In fact, John, three times in his gospel, makes the statement that Jesus loved this family, that these were his people. 
you know? And so think of the last town you lived in. If you've lived in another town other than, than Nashville, and if you went back to that town, it wouldn't just be necessarily to go back to the, the places you liked in that town, but there would be some people you would say, oh, I definitely want to connect with them. Mary and Martha and Lazarus seem to be people who were like that with Jesus. What's interesting about it is we don't know when they met, but it could be, and again, I'm speculating, but it could be that these friendships go back to Mary and Joseph and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' parents, that maybe growing up they were families that knew each other. The point is they're not strangers to each other. They were connected. They had, they had this connection with each other. And so we know they were close. They were the kind of friends who would anticipate seeing each other. Maybe you would call them backdoor guests, you know, that they, they wouldn't necessarily stand at the front door and knock, but they would go around to the back and just kind of wander in and make themselves at home. We have friends like this, right? And we love them, and they're great. So they would light up when they would see each other. Friendship's important because it invites a simple question. When we understand that this is the nature of the relationship between Jesus and Mary and Martha, then it invites us to ask the question, what, what, when you hear Jesus talking in Scripture, What's the tone of voice that he uses? Because it'll tell you a lot about your theology, right? What's the tone of voice God uses when he talks? Like I could have Daniel read this passage, and I could have eight other people come up and read the same passage. And if you were theatrical a little bit, you might, you might interpret the passage when you read it, right? And so when you read that line, Martha, Martha, you're full of all kinds of anxiety and worry, you know. You might read that in a bunch of different ways. You might read that as Jesus being just exasperated with this woman that he can't wait to just be rid of. He's tolerating her. Oh, Martha, 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 Martha. Right? Or you might read it as just dismissive or authoritarian or cryptic or exasperated or distanced. Right? But we could read it a host of different ways. It helps us to have in our minds that this was a conversation between friends. It's a conversation between friends. In other words, Jesus is not merely tolerating this woman. He's not angry with her. He loves her. They have a history. And so he speaks words to her that are strong. And sometimes for us, the thing we need to hear in God's word is, are words that are strong. But for many of us, it's hard to hear words that are strong without interpreting them as being angry or as being... Um, condescending, or as being heavy-handed and, and like, man, I just completely screwed up. I blew it. Here, Jesus uses strong words, and he corrects Mary. He corrects her, he, or Martha, and he defends Mary. But what we see plainly is, is that Jesus is not rebuking Martha in order to be rid of her. He's contending for her. That's the point. As Jesus is fighting for Martha's heart, He's pushing back on her because he wants something. He wants something for her heart. And so let's dig into what's happening here in the text. I'm going to move this over because I'm standing like on two, and it, and it makes a noise when I shift my weight. <laughs> so I'm just going to come over here and deal with that. So what's happening in the text? This is a scene. What I love about this scene is, uh, you know, the scriptures tell us there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> there's nothing new under the sun. We've been in situations like this before where there's work to be done and you know it and everybody else in the room seems to not, right? We've been in that situation before. So what's happening here? Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
She's listening to him. Mary's a friend of Jesus. They're tight. They know each other. Their families go back, perhaps. She's sitting at his feet. She's listening to him. She's being close. Martha is busy acting as the host of the party. What we have to realize is both women are motivated by their enthusiasm over Jesus' presence. They're glad he's there. So what they're doing is an expression of him having come. And so Martha, I I say that because Martha can get a bad reputation. She can be the punchline sometimes, as though she's nothing more than a busybody who's only concerned with the appearance of things, and that's that's just not the case. Martha is sincere. We shouldn't be that hard on her. She's sincere. She's interested in giving to Jesus the best that she has. And the way she's wired, the best that she has is she will work to put out a spread for hospitality, and she'll do whatever it takes as long as it takes. And that's what she'll do. It's an expression of affection. But as she's buzzing around, pouring drinks, setting out food, seeing to the comfort of her guests, she keeps passing her sister, who is just sitting there. And, and for Martha, a whole lot is broken about this, right? Go, go here in your own heart, because I know for many of us, in this, we are this person. There's something that needs to be done. You should all see that. It should be so plain. Mary's sisterhood obligates her to help Martha in Martha's mind. And her refusal to help translates into laziness. And we've been in this position. We know what looks or words were exchanged. We do because we've all, we've all been in that situation. We felt the weight of the gaze of somebody who was looking at us, wanting us to do something, and we were just not going to do it. Or we were the person giving the look and hoping, I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down right now because you... We're people, right? We're people, and so we get it. And so Martha's buzzing around, and what does she do? You see her heart here. She appeals to Jesus, and in her appeal to Jesus, she really shows her hand. Because in her appeal to Jesus, she doesn't just say that she's frustrated with Mary, but she also says she's frustrated with Jesus. What does she say? I mean, she's kind of bossy, right? She says, Lord, do you not care? that my sister has left me to serve alone, tell her then to help me. Great pronouns in this sentence. Do you not care that my sister has left me alone? Tell her to help me. Because in Martha's mind, surely Jesus sees what is so plain to her, the breakdown of what's happening. And Martha reveals that she interprets Jesus' lack of intervention as not caring about her. So as long as we're going along for the ride and putting ourselves in the story, this is a great place to say, where in your life has Jesus not done something for you that you have interpreted as him just not caring about you? Where is he just, he should be able to look at your situation, read it like you read it, and respond in the way that you think he should respond. What's happening here is to Martha, Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care that Mary is failing to hold up her end. 
And it's complicated because there actually is a cost here. By not helping, Martha is not only being lazy in the, or Mary is not only being lazy in the mind of Martha, she's making Martha then do all the work, right? And all of the work in Martha's mind is necessary. So everything she's doing has to happen, and apparently she's the only person who's going to do it. And so Martha, to her, among the three of them, she's the only one doing it right. The only one. And, she doesn't, and she's letting, letting people know that this is not okay. Mary was doing the indefensible. Jesus should have intervened. And so I want to get into Martha's head and her heart just a little bit because we are Martha. She's us. And so I want to set aside the hospitality and just kind of focus on what's happening in her heart in the moment, which has not as much to do with the task as much as it has to do with her perspective. And that's this. Martha thinks she's right. What do you do when you think you're right? Regardless of what the situation is, how do you behave when you think you're right and other people are not on the same page with you? What do they become to you? See, this passage is not just about fill your calendar with less busy stuff and more contemplative stuff. What do you do when you're convinced you're right and people are not on board? Because to Martha, she's the enlightened one here. She knows what the situation calls for. She gets to work. She's so sure that she's right that she just assumes Jesus will agree with her. Why wouldn't he? And then when he doesn't, it never occurs to her, never occurs to her, that of the three, she's actually the only one who's chosen the wrong thing. In her mind, she's the only one who's chosen the right thing. And Jesus says, actually, why can't Martha see this? The answer is because her course is a course of action. It's a course of action. Mary is doing nothing. Martha is doing everything and doing is the important thing. Doing. Entire religions are built on that principle. Doing is everything. Maybe even yours is built on that. Maybe your own version of Christianity is built on what Jesus wants from me is for me to do stuff. That's what it is. Talking about a religion that presumes the, God, the thing God wants most from us is our action. We're here to work, so we better look busy or we better get busy. Because Jesus, the, the, the boss is coming, right? And so Martha fancied this idea that she, you, know, she gets, you get self-important. When you think you're doing the essential work and nobody else sees it, you think, that, and, and not only am I doing good work, but it's necessary uh, it has to happen. And so Martha fancies the idea that Jesus actually needs what she's giving, that he wants what she's doing. Charles Spurgeon has had a great way of just kind of taking the, the gun out of our hand here. He says this, we spoil our service when we overestimate its importance. We spoil our service when we overestimate its importance, for this leads us into loftiness and pride. It takes us right from the posture of being a servant to the posture of being the only person in the room who's right. Listen, our busyness, your busyness, what if it's not necessary? Because here's the thing, 
Our busyness is only necessary. It's only necessary if God is unable to do things without it. But that's just not the case. He can can do whatever he wants. He's fine. He invites us to serve. He invites us to participate with him. But he he doesn't need anything we do. He doesn't need anything we do. In fact, the most redeeming work that God does, salvation itself, he does completely on his own. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, and this has a little bit of a bite to it, and it pertains to the act of salvation, okay? But he said this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Perspective, right? So are you starting to see the situation here? Mary's, it's not just that she's doing activity set A, or Martha's doing activity set A, Mary's doing activity set B, and Martha's thinking, well, the only right one is this one. That's, that's, it's more than that. Something's going on in her heart, and that's she's right, and everybody else is wrong, and what's wrong with everybody? And we're starting to see the situation. She thinks she's doing something necessary, proper, but only because in her own mind she's made it necessary and proper. And then she takes the lofty position that she's the one who's honoring Jesus. But let's look at Mary. What's she doing? Because Jesus flips the accusation and says Mary, in fact, is the one who is doing the right thing. Mary's the one who's honoring Jesus. She's actually being the hospitable one. Because in her presence is the greatest teacher in the history of the world, and she is listening to him teach. That's the hospitality. She's sitting at his feet. She's listening to him. She's being with him instead of just being around him, doing things for him. That's a lot of how we interpret what God wants from us, is he wants me to be around him and to do things for him. And here, what we're seeing is Jesus is just not as interested in your activity as he is in your heart. And that's why even when he pushes back on Martha, he's pushing back on her heart because that's what he's interested in. This is hard to hear because the truth is we form people's impressions of us through our activity, right? We work, we present, we dress ourselves in certain ways, we show up at certain places and not other places because through activity, we form people's impressions of us. In fact, most people, we just leverage our observable lives as the primary way people come to know us and love us and approve of us. Observe me, and on that basis, then you will approve of me and you will love me and you will receive me, right? And so we'll say, look at what school I got into. Look at my grades. Look at my attention to detail, how organized I am. Look at my service record, my net worth, my significant other, my displays of devotion, my loyalty. Love me and accept me for those things. And meanwhile, while you're doing that, I'm going to do my best to keep my inadequacies hidden from you. And that'll be the deal. I'll impress you with things I do. I'll conceal from you who I am. And on that basis, you will then come to know me. And you won't know my fear, my ignorance, my wounds, my slip-ups, my hidden life. Keep all that away. Instead, you'll know the narrative that I have constructed. We live in the golden age of constructing narratives, right? I I have a 
phone in my pocket and I can construct a narrative of my day and it will be all you can really know about me and I have control over it. And I, I'm, I'm kind of good at it, right? Because I know how to inject even the appearance of humility to where you would say, he seems really humble. Exactly. I got you. I got you right. I'm playing you like a fiddle, right? I mean, it's just we do that, though, don't we? He must be really happy. Their family must just play board games all day, except for when they're, <laughs> except for when they're doing family devotions, right? And, and that just must be the reality that they live under, and we can construct this. Mary just didn't, she didn't care about that. She, she wanted people, to, she didn't want people to see a flurry of activity and love her for it. She, she wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus as his disciple and to learn from him and to love him and to take time to understand and to be unhurried. And I would contend that what Mary has done, ironically, is she's chosen the harder thing. Because what she's done is she's chosen stillness and availability and devotion. She's practicing a faith. Anybody can be busy. That's not hard. Learning how to be undistracted today, that's hard. It's, it's irony, right? It, it's just, it's irony that it takes more work to be still than it does to be busy. I can multitask like a champ, and I'm not alone in this room. There are things I can do all at the same time. I can read texts, emails, I can follow news stories, I can stay refreshed on social media feeds, I can study for a talk, I can manage a to-do list, all while either listening to music or having some TV show streaming in the background. And I might be in the middle of the pack in this room in terms of my capacity to multitask. I've met people who, I don't even know how you, I don't know how you do it. Some of you can do all that while driving, <laughs> right? But do you know what's hard for me? It's hard for me to sit in silence for 10 minutes. It's hard for me to read a chapter of a book with substance. It's hard for me to untangle a complex thought. It can be really hard, can it, to come up with a thoughtful response to the question, how was your day? Anybody can answer that question, but to give a thoughtful response, how was your day? You gotta dig a little. You gotta, you gotta remember what your day was. You gotta, you gotta go back. Jesus is after our hearts, not just our activity. And so when we submerge ourselves in busyness, what we do is we often lose touch with our hearts, sometimes without even realizing it. And other times we do it because this was the plan all along, is I am going to submerge myself in activity because I don't want to feel, because when I feel, it just feels like pain. So I don't. I'm just busy. And I'm unimpeachable in the process because everything I'm doing looks important and it looks necessary. You ever done this? Constructed an impenetrable life where your actions are unimpeachable, but your heart is just locked down tight. For some of us, that's exactly who we are. Because I've, I've built a fortress and nobody can get to me anymore. And it's protective, and it's, it, feels it feels so necessary. I want to turn the light on ourselves here, if we haven't already, and just to say this message is not be busy with a different set of activities. 
This message is God is after your heart. Are you available? Are you available to be known? And this, of course, presumes a certain understanding of what it even means to be a Christian, right? Because what is a Christian? We often put the focus on, on what it means to be a Christian on activity. So I'm a Christian by what I do. My activity is what Christ wants most from me. And when this is our mindset, our relationship with Christ is then going to resemble what we see with Martha, that we're in the same room with him, and we're doing things for him, but we're not with him. And this can be a lot of the way Christianity looks. I'm busy. I'm working for him. I assume this is what he wants from me. If you're here in this room and you're not a Christian, maybe this is a point of clarity that may help you understand what Christianity is, because we don't always do a good job, Christians, of displaying this. It can be easy to think that a Christian is just somebody who strives to follow rules, who goes to church, who avoids bad language, who aspires to do the right thing. And, and the thing is, that's not what it means to be a Christian. That actually is just what it looks like to try to save yourself by, make, by making God proud of you. That's not Christianity. It's not people trying to save themselves by making God proud of us. The word Christian literally means little Christ, like an imitator of Christ an understudy of Christ. We're followers, imitators, disciples. Our focus is on devotion to him. We're Christians because of what Christ has done. We're not Christians in order to get him to do things for us. Why does it matter that we drive home this distinction? It matters because Jesus tells Martha that what she asks him to do, she asks him to correct Mary. The answer is, is really revealing. And what he says is this. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion. In the Bible, the image of the good portion is choosing the presence of the Lord over things, right? And so he says she's chosen the right portion. But then he says more than that. He says she's chosen the good portion and it will not be taken away from her. It will not be taken away from her. Martha wants Mary to give up what she's chosen in the moment, but Jesus says it shouldn't be taken away from her then because it won't be taken away from her ever. She was made to sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn from him, to love him, to be in his company, not just tending to him, but engaging with him, and that for all eternity. We were created to be known and to be loved by our maker, and it has never been and never will be based on our performance. It will always be the result of his grace. And so how do we do that? How do we do that in our lives and not just replace activity set A with activity set B? We cultivate, right? We cultivate, we practice faith. We practice stillness. We practice choosing the good portion. Here are some ways we can do that. The first is by retreating from activity. A group of us went on an overnight backpacking trip um, this past weekend, had a great time. And one of the best things about doing something like that is just the disruption of the flow of everything else in life. And it's not just changing one set of activities for another, but it's, the, it's, it's being aware that you're doing it and, being it and having hours that the only thing you could really do is just sit in front of a campfire and talk. It's pretty great, right? Retreat from activity. We often need to choose to get out of the grind and occasionally drop out of high gear. Another way we can do this is by practicing face-to-face -face time with other people. 
We practice the art of having friendships. So we, we put away our phones and we talk and we practice the art of friendship. We get together with each other. And in a world that is just busy, we don't often do that. We substitute it out for little, little things here and there, little texts or, 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 you know, you beep at somebody on ways, you know, or something like that. But, but you know, practicing the art of face-to-face time, slowing things down so that it's personal. Practice spiritual disciplines like the reading of Scripture and prayer and doing these things slowly with pen in hand without an agenda to get through a chapter, but maybe just to get through whatever 20 minutes gives you, you know? And if it's one verse or it's 20, great. Don't set an agenda on the quantity, but spend the time. Here's one. Observe a Sabbath. And when I say Sabbath... Half of us think rest. And to that half, I would say that's only half. The Sabbath is rest and worship. Those are the two things that mark a Sabbath, right? So if you're busy, you're like, I need a Sabbath. And what you mean is I need a day where I'm not busy. That's only kind of half of a Sabbath. What a Sabbath is, is rest from your work and worship of the Lord. Observe a Sabbath. We live in a strange time. Uh, where people, you know, we, we just did a survey not too long ago at Christ Pres of all the congregations, and the average attendance for people who attend regularly, so we have a whole category of people who have been maybe once or twice, and they're not really in this rotation. People who attend pretty regularly over the course of a year will attend 1.7 times a month. That's kind of the average at Christ Pres. Um, we're not an anomaly there. That's, that's pretty typical, is that most Christian people will go to church between one and two times a month on average. And I get it. There's a lot that happens. There's a lot that can crowd that out. But that's something that happens. But being a part of the local church is a way that we practice intentional community and intentional focusing on Christ. Why would we belong to a church? Why would we be a part of a church? For starters, it's to be at the feet of Jesus, to hear his word, to be around his table. But also when we belong to a local church, accountability is a part of being part of the body, right? As we come to be known, to offer ourselves to the care of our brother and sisters, to invite friendship, to say, look out for me. Look for me. If you notice I'm not here, I've said I'm here. So if you notice that I'm not here, come after me. Ask me where I've been. Ask me how I'm doing. And if you see me starting to make my life go off the rails intervene. I'm asking you to do that because I'm a part of this, I'm a part of this church. Listen, God is not ultimately interested in what you do for him. He's interested in you. He doesn't love you for the good work you do. He loves you. And so learning to live out this devotion, it's going to take time. It's going to take practice, stillness, but it will make a difference. It'll make all the difference. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your word and the opportunity we have to gather around it and to come to your table. Thank you that you had friends, people that you knew and people that you um, could read and speak into. You knew how to get to the heart of people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and you know how to get to ours too. And uh, so, Lord, we thank you for that. I pray that you would Help us to grow in the art of loving you and spending time with you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.